Hi folks, Steve Nellick. As you know, I've become a bit of a media personality these days. And once again, I've made an appearance on another fabulous Australian podcast, Science on Top. So, here's about 30 minutes of the show. Hope you enjoy. It's time we once again put science at the top of our agenda. Hello and welcome to the 55th episode of Science on Top. Today is Thursday, the 10th of May, 2012. I'm Ed Brown, and with me today is my good friend and microbiologist, Dr. Shane Joseph. G'day, Ed. An amateur astronomer, a skeptic, and a generally entertaining kind of guy. Welcome back, Lucas Randall. Uh, thank you very much. And the host of a great podcast, Cheap Astronomy, which I highly recommend. Welcome to the show, Steve Nerlich. Thank you, Ed. Um, well, I'm a big fan of Cheap Astronomy, both the show and the concept in general, of course. Um, I think my telescope cost me about three years' wages, but um, tell us a bit about the show that you do. Sure. I do a weekly podcast, and I've had the website longer than the podcast, uh, which is based on the idea of trying to encourage people not to get put off by all the stuff about department store telescopes <laughs> that so many amateur astronomers seem to poo-poo, because... I think they're okay, and I, I think most people would find a $200 telescope affordable, but the sort of three grand thing that does everything would be a nice thing to have, but most people won't be able to afford it. So I, I'm oh. encouraging people to consider the cheap end. Just, you know, the, the planets in our solar system, your average three to four inch cheapo telescope would be pretty good. Yeah. But if you want to actually go look into nebulae and all that sort of stuff, yeah, you do need to get the bigger aperture. Fair enough. Yep, that's true. But, but, <laughs> you wanted uh, to disagree with me there. But <laughs> I, I did, I did. Well, you could see the Orion Nebula through a cheap telescope, but not, not all of them, I suppose. But this is the solution for, you know, getting your kids out of the backyard and looking at Saturn. Two, three hundred dollars would do it. You mentioned the website and you've got a, a section on there where you give some advice about some cheap scopes and also binocular astronomy, which is something that, um, you know, a lot of people don't have, you know, don't realise that you can see so much with binoculars and yeah. and uh, taking particularly kids out, um, once you train them how to use binoculars, which can be quite a, uh, a fun uh, <laughs> experience in itself, but once once yeah. they get the hang of how to, how to aim the things... Um, there's just so much beauty in the night sky that you can enjoy with binoculars alone, and you don't have to spend a fortune on those at all. Yeah, and a, and a little tip, even <clears throat> a pair of glasses. Well, once you're about 25, 30, your visual acuity starts going. Mm. If you, you start early on a pair of glasses that improves your distance vision, then the night sky looks amazing, and, and people just don't realise their vision has gone a tiny little bit so they can no longer see the stars as clearly as they could with a little mm. help. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, as a family, we're just having a bit of a chat now, so I just put the podcast on hold. Um, as a family, we we, uh, we camp quite a lot, as in we go camp and we don't uh, put on stage musicals or anything. And um, we, and you know, one of my favourite things to do with the kids is to just to lay on the ground, you know, it's better at summertime, lay on the ground at night, uh, you know, while we're camping and just stare at the stars and, you know, just help, just talk with the star, talk about the stars to them, you know, tell them some of the, the mythology about the constellations. And it's just a great way to get kids to start looking up. You know, it's amazing how many people don't look up and don't realise how incredible the, the night sky is. I'll tell you a story. My neighbour, she, she found out I was into astronomy and she sort of came up very seriously and asked me, Steve, what ever happened to the Milky Way? She seemed to remember when she was a kid, there was this, this big band of light in the sky and it's disappeared now. And, and of course, that's the, the, the light pollution <laughs> effect. 
people Conservatives have. ruined it. That's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask about um, the whole light pollution issue. Like, you're talking about even binocular um, astronomy. How possible is that if you live sort of in the middle of the burbs and, you know, or even like where I live sort of, which is more in the inner city? Is it if possible? If you've got the binoculars, you cut out a lot of the light pollution and so your your vision gets better, if you know what I mean. Because right. you're, you're blocking out a lot of the lateral light and just looking straight ahead. Okay. But you'll still get some glow from the atmosphere. Yeah, because oh, that's, that's all I've got on hand, really. A pair of crappy binoculars. So I figure that, you know, hey, if I'm going to yeah, give them a have try. a look up anyway. Just before we move on to the actual stories, uh, Steve, did you want to give us a <laughs> rundown on your PhD that you're doing? Thank you. Um, well, regular listeners of my podcast may be aware that I've commenced a PhD at the Australian National University, which is in Canberra, where I live. I'm looking at the issue of science education. You, you probably hear either in Australia or in the US or elsewhere that students are losing interest in studying science. They're going for sort of easier subjects. And that worries everyone in terms of long-term economic growth. If you mm. don't have people doing science, you don't have new technologies and inventions and so forth. Innovation, yeah. So I'm investigating how true those anecdotes are. Yeah. So you mentioned on uh, on the podcast, you did an episode, I think, on, on your PhD and the experience, which I very much enjoyed, by the way. Thank um, you. But the, you were saying that those the, the enabling courses, the STEM courses, uh, you know, your science, your, your uh, mathematics and engineering and, and even IT to some degree, there's there's depending on who you ask and what what statistics they're using there's you know there's it's quite a political issue so people will tell you that oh, no, no, there's there's not been a decrease and you know these courses are actually quite popular and blah 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 but you've gone you're actually starting to go back uh, you know and, and and check records from what early like early 80s and stuff i believe is that right you want me to geek out on this okay um, <laughs> the, the, the data gets pretty out. weak uh prior to the 1990s but even that's going back a fair way mm. Um, we should define STEM, I suppose. STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering and Mathematics. There's fairly good data going back to the 90s, as I say. What we see is science in general has experienced a lot of growth, but most of that is in sort of biology and even psychology, which is, is science, but it's not it's where we science. are. A soft, a soft science, science yes. Where, where we're seeing drops are in the, the, the hardcore stuff, the physics, chemistry, maths. Mm. Um, engineering's actually a good story. There, there's mm. a lot of growth there. That, that's probably very much an Australian phenomenon where the, the mining industry is mad keen to get more engineers. There, there's a small number of jobs in the science area, but um, all the surveys they've done on graduates after they've finished you tend to find the, the sciences have some of the lowest rates of graduates who actually work in the field that they studied in. I mean, they're all getting jobs somewhere, mm, but mm. there just aren't that many science jobs. So people are making rational decisions to to enrol in different fields because that's yeah. where the jobs are, unfortunately. It's so hard to get grants. It's so hard to, mm-hmm. you know, to, the research here is, is it, are, we, are we in a new era where we're just science illiterate or what's is it a government problem that they're just not uh, investing is a what do you think's the root cause of it who do we blame steve yeah who i uh, give aside i want to get my pitchfork ready and go after them um the the issue is really about what happens at the other end i think if there were jobs the students would enroll in these fields there's perhaps not a good understanding of the employment 
possibilities are available. I mean, while you hear people in science are always chasing grants and so forth, well, that's just the life it is. It doesn't mean you don't have a job. It's just you, you sort of spend 20 years in casual employment, <laughs> although it's, it's as much a job as anyone else has, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's obviously but, it's uh, not just an issue here either. I know Pamela Gay um, has spoken about this at, at a lot of her talks and and even on the um, on on their podcast. It's a huge issue in the US. Says so she spends an inordinate amount of her time chasing grant money and trying to you know guarantee that even her uh, her students are still going to have a course to attend. It's you know it's, mm. it's got to that point over in the US, which is just just so sad. I think even China's starting to experience the same issue. It's no longer about able to get students to pursue the, those <laughs> courses of study because they're, they're starting to see there's more jobs in business and uh, commerce and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Another cameo by Jezebel there, Shane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Shane's uh, sky bike on light up. He was about to add something to the conversation. He was barking. <laughs> <laughs> Sparking mad. Well, we'll get to dogs later on, Shane, but uh, the first story... And we were just talking about private enterprise. Planetary Resources, a new company backed by a lot of billionaires, people like filmmaker James Cameron, Google executives Larry Page and Eric Schmidt, and Ross Perot Jr. Uh, Well, this company announced a few weeks ago that they plan to go to an asteroid, not because it is easy, but because there is money in it. Uh, We're talking asteroid mining. This is a pretty damn awesome story, Lucas. Yeah, well, there's money in it eventually. Uh, I think that's, that's something that went to great pains to point out that their, um, uh, their, their plans are not, are not around short-term gain. They're talking, you know, very long-term sort of strategy here. And it's interesting because it's one of the – I mean, are we in a position technologically to start thinking about this now? And they're saying that we really are. It's, it's a matter of incremental small steps to get out there, starting with probes to identify good candidates and that sort of thing. Um, and and you mentioned there are there's a whole lot of billionaires involved with this, and they, these are some heavy hitters. These are not yeah. like you know when I heard James Cameron, I thought, oh here we go. You know, like you know I don't want to be cynical. We just he just had the Mariana Trench thing, and you know is this another grab for nah? This this he's just one of many that are involved in this, and there's some some real heavy hitters from from um, you know NASA days and big companies, yeah. Microsoft executives, all sorts of people involved in this. These are not people who would just rush in and you know and and sign up for a, a, a trivial. Uh, um, exercise but they are people who understand the silicon valley approach of yes. innovate of get in there throw money at something and if it sticks great we'll run with it mm. and these are the people that we need these are the innovators that we we're talking about steve the people who will go out and get the ball rolling and this might not go anywhere this might you know they might send a few probes to an asteroid and it fails or whatever as lucas was saying i mean we don't actually know where all this platinum metals that, that, that they are focusing mm. on are. Mm. We, we know from asteroids that are crashed onto Earth that those rare metals are out there somewhere, but we have no current knowledge or technology to identify a particular lump of rock that has those metals in it. We, we can make some I'm educated sure guesses. Sorry, go on. Sure, I was going to say, I'm sure there's some pseudoscience that can fill those gaps. Um, yes. There's probably a website <laughs> you can go to, uh, claimyourasteroid.com or something. Sorry, Steve. So the, no, 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 that's fine. The first part of their plan then seems to be prospecting. So mm. the the first stage is to build a space telescope. Then they have these robot spacecraft that are going to go out and presumably do drilling and so forth. Uh, I mean, there's various graphics of these little robots flying around shining blue and red lights on 
big rocks. I'm not <laughs> quite sure what that was going to achieve. But, uh, laser. Laser. I, yeah. I assumed it was a disco thing. It, it is very much the, they're talking about this incremental approach with these baby steps. And as Steve said, it's, uh, you know, the start with identifying um, uh, the, the right sort of asteroids that have got what we're looking for. And quite surprisingly, what they're, what, you know, the first step would involve looking for volatiles, looking for the, the, the gases and, and water and so forth that are really, really hard to take up to space. But these are the things that you need up there if you're going to have human populations and also if you're going to be building things. Um, the big thing is water. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I mean, they're saying that launching water into space because water is very heavy; it's, it, it doesn't compress. It's, it, it costs a fortune. So I think I read something like twenty thousand dollars per per liter or something ridiculous to get it into space. Um, yeah, Ten thousand US per pound. I have no idea what that translates to useful <laughs> measurements, but <laughs> per nautical fathom. Well, yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, so you know they, they'll be looking for the base materials to to use for you know, for bases, <laughs> basically to to start. You know, and then and then once they've found, uh, say again, fuel stations. Yeah, yeah, pre- pretty much. So yeah, that's that's what they're looking for first, and then once they've identified those, they can start using those minerals and those volatiles to um, to help them to establish um, you know bases and so forth. Because one of the key things is, all right, if we can find the base materials and we can set up manufacturing in space, then we can actually we don't have to launch so much because that's one of the you know the key uh, cost things. So you know, once once they get out there, then uh, they're saying the next step is to to actually tow uh, asteroids into perhaps lunar orbit, which would be easier to achieve, or maybe to set up an operation on the asteroid itself. This is inevitable; it will happen one day. It's just a question yeah. of whether this will be the group that actually set us on that path and that journey. And as I sort of said before, I don't really care. I don't care if these guys get up there and it doesn't work and the whole thing's a bust. Mm. They're out there doing it. They're the pioneers and. Being the first is never easy, mm. but if if this inspires other corporations to get in there and compete, whatever, this is this is what we need. If this is actually people putting their own money on the line and making a serious investment, it's what NASA's trying to be doing ever since they cancelled the shuttle program. It was NASA's way of saying, we'll do the exploration and the science stuff. You guys do the trucking stuff up. What, what governments do well is they break frontiers. But once frontiers are broken, then often, you know, if you can commercialise something, you then you bring the efficiencies into it um, and then you can use them to, you know, as your delivery vehicles, you can you can use them to, to get you into space. And then NASA can focus on the science again and that can focus on, um, you know, the exploration and the frontier breaking rather than like we had with the, uh, the space shuttle program and some would argue even with the International Space Station. You know, there's been 25 years of, of stagnancy you know we haven't done anything new in that time apart from send probes from awesome places um uh, like chris lewicki for example is involved with this project he's the chief engineer for planetary resources um he he was involved with the spirit and opportunity mars rover missions he was the the flight director for those and uh he was also i think uh involved with the the phoenix lander so you know he he knows quite a lot about sending stuff to places um you know and, and <laughs> he's um, Which is useful yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, so if this doesn't work, maybe you can get into shipping or, or um, you know, a courier. Maybe you can become a courier or something like that. Um, you know, those, there's plenty of those jobs. Anyway. Um, yeah. But uh, so he's quite excited. You know, if he's saying that we can do this and we can do it on an economy of scale that's achievable, especially when you've got backings by billionaires 
then, you know, I, I'm actually really excited. And from what they said in their press conference, they've been putting these plans together for several years. It's not something they've just got together over a beer and gone, oh, you know what we should do. Yeah. No, it's it's exciting. And for me, it feels almost like that sort of dawning of the space age when, you know, we're first launching rockets to the moon and everything. Um, Steve, do you think this sort of ties in with what we we're talking before about people not being interested in getting a career in science and everything? Do you think if we see planetary resources become more successful, they're going to need a more, you know, scientific, uh, scientifically literate employee base. Do you think there's going to be jobs created by this for people who might be interested in it? Yes, I do. In fact, if you go to their website, they are seeking applications for employees. Um, it's a very googly sort of advertisement. They they ask you questions about what are your three favourite tools to get the job done, and what makes Emma. them your favourite. That that's one of the the interview questions. And okay. then you, you have to add to your application a picture that best describes you, but is not of you. Oh. So, <laughs> okay. For me, it would be a department like store telescope, I suppose. Yeah, not but actually saying it. I think the. The way to make this happen is to find somewhere to make profit out of it. Then there'll be jobs and the whole thing will take off. Um, take off. I hope this is the way to do it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and, you know, we know it has to happen. It will happen one yeah. day. There's no doubt about it. It's, it is the next step for us to go, you know, to the outer limits of our star system and, and beyond. We, we have to do it because it's just Earth has a finite number of resources. Yep. Look, I, I think we should do it and learn as we go. Mm. Absolutely. Let's be pioneers again. So, sorry, guys. I am listening. I'm just applying here for a job. Um, <laughs> brain scans of dogs could give researchers a new tool for studying what happens in the mind of man's best friend. Basically, the only reason I put this story in was for the picture of the dog in an fMRI, but this is essentially what we're talking about. You couldn't look at that and not go, oh. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so basically, yeah, they're talking about putting a dog in an fMRI machine, which yeah. is the big thing that, you know, you're not allowed to move in. You've got to keep very, very still while this loud thing goes clunk, 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 clunk around you. <laughs> and looking at activity in the brain and their initial findings were they showed the brain regions that were expected to become active when the dog was anticipating a reward. They did light up. And that's a sort of a proof of concept to show that you can study a dog in an fMRI machine. Yeah, and they want to, you know, they, they were going on about how they want to use it to look at things like empathy and, you know, can, can we detect empathy in the brains of dogs? I just think they did it because they wanted to put a dog in an fMRI, but that's just... <laughs> <laughs> and it was how... worth training a dog for, what was it, a whole year? But how excited would Pavlov have been? If he'd had access to <laughs> oh, this? <yeah. laughs> he, he would have, yeah, he would have. He would have been salivating over it. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice, very nice. All right. Well, let's head back to space again. Yeah. Jupiter, because that's where the European Space Agency wants to go. The next mission likely to get the go-ahead will be... And so, you know, I reckon they come up with the name first and then just fit an acronym into it, because this is <laughs> the JUICE mission, which obviously stands for Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer. Naturally. And once you get past the name, though, this is an awesome mission, Steve. Yep. It's Good. due to... Yeah, is that all I have to say? No. It's due to launch in 2022, apparently. Or I should say 2022. Um, 
It's the second, well, unless something flies in between, it'll be the second ever solar-powered spacecraft we've sent to Jupiter. So currently the Juno mission, which is a NASA mission, is on its way there due to arrive in 2016. So it used to be the case that years ago you'd give up on solar panels once you got to the asteroid belt. There just wasn't enough uh, sunlight per unit area to, to power solar panels, but obviously the technology's improved over the years, so we can now send uh, solar-powered spacecraft as far as Jupiter. Of course, this is just for the electrical power, not the, the rocket fuel, but sorry, go on. Ed. Yeah, by, by the end of the, the its mission, it's going to be still getting 650 watts, I think, from the sun, which is enough to power your average yeah. PC. Yep. And the Victorian yeah. government's trying to come up with a way of taxing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Victorian government. Yeah, okay. <laughs> The, the plan is to visit what are called the Galilean moons. So there are four Galilean moons. There's Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto. Io, as you probably know, is the pizza moon. It's uh, very, very volcanic, certainly not an icy moon. It's the other three that are the icy moons, which is where the juice name comes from. Um, so I, I read this and I, I was sort of taken aback by the fact that we're going to focus on Ganymede. The, the, yes. the plan is to look at the three moons but then go into orbit around Ganymede. And mm. if you've ever seen 2010 and various science mm. fiction novels, it always seems to be about Europa, which yeah. is traditionally the, the ocean underneath the ice. Yeah, it's a more exciting one. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think part of the picture is it's probably easier to go into orbit around Ganymede because it's further out from Jupiter, so you have less issues with the orbital mechanics of it. But actually, when, when you look into Ganymede, it's quite an interesting moon. It's it's the biggest moon, as people may know, and it is the only moon that has a magnetosphere. Mm. Um, so the thinking is that within it, there, there is probably a, a liquid iron core that um, is rotating as the moon's rotating, uh, a similar sort of mechanism to what drives Earth's magnetosphere. It's not nearly as powerful as Earth's, but it's uh, an interesting effect. So there are reasons to think Ganymede is at least as good a candidate for life as Europa. And that's it again? It's, it's looking for life? That's the reason to go there? Possibly. Yeah, I, I wonder how they're going to do it. I mean, all, all I've seen from the... Uh, it's you know fairly early days in the design phase, but they're, they're talking about the spacecraft having all these nifty cameras and so forth. Um, probably some sort of magnetometer, but how else you could look for life, I don't know, apart from visually as they're planning. So they'd be a bit lucky to find strong evidence, I would have thought, because if there is life and it's water-based life, presumably it's well under the, the surface of the ice. Well, it does have ice-penetrating radar. Which is great so, if you're looking for submarines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there could be a Nessie under there. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, I'd I, I just like to put it out there that I actually find this sort of mission and missions like this much more interesting than something like asteroid mining. And that's just because wow. I like the I, I like the idea of the you know the whole exploratory nature of science. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, Shane. This is one of those things that um, our generation hasn't seen a great deal of science for the sake of discovery, just to see what happens. You know, this this let let's let's do these missions. Let's spend this money on it because we, you know, if you try and provide a, a cost benefit for it, we, you know, it's hard to do because you just don't know what the science is going to find. You don't yeah. know what the benefit's going to be in the long run. You don't know until you look. 
um, and and this probe is is absolutely geared towards exploratory. Uh, they've got spectrometers, they've got magnetometers, they've got uh, um, laser altimeter. That's you know this is about mapping the surface of the planet. It's got a laser radar. <laughs> yeah, laser beam, freaking laser beams. Um, you know, so this is this is all about discovery, finding out more, and figuring it out. It reminds me a little bit of the. Um, um, of the messenger mission as well over to uh, to Mercury. You know, it's about, you know, we don't know a heck of a lot about it. You know, we've, we've done a flyby of it before, but we've never actually studied it. And we've learned so much about Mercury in such a short time as a result of that, that mission, which had no, you know, initial expectation of payoff. Um, but, you know, in, since Messenger got there, what, as, uh, late last year, I think it got there, just the amount of science that's come out of that already has been really cool. I was going to say it reminds me more of Cassini at Saturn, and oh, yeah. mainly because the photographs that we're getting from Saturn, and they're just gorgeous, mm. and that's the sort of thing that inspires, particularly kids, you, you show them pictures yeah. of Saturn or Enceladus or something like that, and that that's inspiring, it gets them wanting to learn more and hopefully get into science and ruin your PhD, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I'll tell you, I'll just ignore that comment and tell you, one you. thing about this mission that kind of freaked me out was you, you go through all the details and, yeah, they're going to go around the moons, they're going to, going to orbit around Ganymede, and then when it's all over, the spacecraft's going to crash on the surface. I would have thought if there was a prime directive that it would yeah. it would be saying, you know, you can go and explore life, but you're not allowed to crash your germ-filled spacecraft on it afterwards. Are they going That's to crash, right. crash juice into one of the moons, are they? Crash juice into a moon. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I, I'm, I, yes, I, they I must are. Ganymede. Yeah. Wow, I'm really surprised about that. Yeah, because yeah, you know, I, I, yeah. I would have thought that. I mean, obviously, it's all a matter of fuel and 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 um, what they can actually do with the the instrument. But that's that just seems crazy because you know they've taken such great great pains to avoid. You hear a lot about the Goldilocks zone and the and you know this sweet spot for life that's based on what we know about Earth, but really in the, in the overall reality and the overall uh, likelihood is that that at least microbial life is is as much more plentiful in the galaxy on moons of gas giants, just just as as a matter of you know order of figures. So I'm just really stunned to hear that that's is that actually the mission plan or just something that's been yeah well, it's on the website. We, well, we well, should pick it on the internet. It must be true. <laughs> we'll march up and down. In front of Issa and uh, talk them out of it. I think that's crazy. Did anyone else pick up the uh, the way it's getting there? The Earth, Venus, Earth, Earth gravitational assist. Uh, okay, that's pretty cool. Now that is pretty uh, cool, and this is the thing that uh, we can do with probes. So it'll take a fair while, seven and a half years to get there, but um, it'll use it'll steal some uh, some momentum from Earth and Venus, and then Earth and Earth again to get there. Which is I love that. Just just the the mathematics involved with working out that that orbit, that slingshot that they need to do is just so cool. You get a much bigger kick from the inner planets because their orbital velocity is that much faster. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the amount of gravitational assist you get from Jupiter or Saturn really isn't that much. Mm. Mm. And if you can slingshot it around the sun, it'll go back in time. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and that's true. <laughs> that's our I show. I saw that on a movie, yeah. <laughs> Steve Nerlich is from CheapAstro.com, a great site for information on astronomy with a budget and also a terrific podcast. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Thank you, Ed. It's been a pleasure. Lucas Randall, blogs at CodeNix.org. Great to have you back, Lucas. Thank you very much. And Dr. Shane Joseph is a co-host on that really awesome podcast, Science on Top. <laughs> Thanks as always, Shane. No worries, mate. 
<laughs> and if you like Science on Top, you should jump on iTunes and say something nice there. It really helps other people find us. And the same applies to Zune and Stitcher Smart Radio as well. All the stories we talked about are on our website if you want more information, and there are links to follow us on all the social networks as well. Our theme music was produced by the upstanding members. Next week, we'll be back putting science on top of the agenda. Join us then. And that was Science on Top. Hope that was fun. See you next week for more Cheap Astronomy.